All right, guys, welcome back. Before we get started, I mentioned last week a, a challenge to uh, get a notebook, because we're not handing out notes this time around. But if you didn't and you want one, I brought some just to help you. These are, you know, they're not fancy, but they're on the house. So if anyone wants a notebook, you can raise your hand. I can give you one to start taking notes. The challenge is to take notes yourself and have a notebook you can just keep with your Bible, a consistent place to take notes, write prayer requests, and so forth. So there's, there's blue and black and red. What's that? Yeah, that's going to be a problem. Yeah, grab one, write your name on it. You can take this free if you use it. If you don't use it, it'll be 20 bucks. Yeah, <laughs> to me, no. <laughs> it will not fit in your Bible. And look, you don't have to use it. I'm just giving you something for those who don't have it, who want just a, a place to start. Hey, get yourself a fancy notebook and uh, something personal. Go for it. But I just want you to get a notebook. Start taking notes. Thanks, buddy. Prayer requests, so forth. Yeah, if you're obsessive-compulsive, you'll have to rewrite. We have to transcribe last week's notes into your new notebook. I would probably do that, too. Yeah, That's, it's, a, it's our burden. <laughs> All right. A few more. Final call for a little notebook action. Jamie passing them out. Yeah, there's, there's, there's enough. Okay, good. Well, let's get started for tonight. Thank you, Jamie. As you know, we're starting a new series on biblical leadership. We're beginning, beginning with some of these overarching bigger subjects. Last week, we covered the importance of biblical leadership. And tonight, the mission of biblical leadership. Trying to answer, we're trying to answer questions like, what's the goal of leadership? What's the mission or the purpose of leadership? Where are leaders trying to take their people? Where, what are they after? I want to start by first building a contrast with leadership in the world. So you can help me. Think about our politics, our political system, and why do you think people get into politics to begin with when they're young? What's their motive for entering politics? Community, change the world, serve people. Good stuff, you know, good reasons to, to serve others, we would hope, with their initial motive. But after, as time goes on, why do so many stay in politics? Yeah, yeah. okay, you got it all, right? Yeah, you guys know this too well. <laughs> Power, prestige, pride, glory, money, ego, so forth. And really, for career politicians... What becomes their mission? Getting reelected. That's it. Just the mission is to stay in power, to get reelected. Maybe for a little while they can get stuff done, but after the second year comes by, it's like it's all, all focused on getting reelected. This really explains the ineffectiveness and inefficiencies of our political system. You can just imagine a newly elected senator who entered politics to truly serve people, but things change with time. He's making a lot of money now. His family is getting accustomed to a certain quality of life and to maintain that standard of living. He might have to start trading some political favors for bonuses. Also, the longer he's in office, the more people seem to respect him. 
He enters a room, everyone just kind of turns and looks at him, recognizes him. His heart swells up with a little bit of pride. He likes the feeling. He doesn't want to go back to being unnoticed and unneeded. Everyone serves him. He's got people bringing him lunch and dinner and coffee and whatever he wants. Like they live to wait on him. It's pretty nice. He, he falls in love with this power. And as time continues, the feeling of self-importance rises. He starts to feel as if he, he is better than most people. He's certainly treated that way, more important, and he starts to believe it. He should be in that position. He should stay in that position. I mean, who else is going to do it? And over time, the mission changes. He entered politics with the mission to serve others, but now his mission has reversed. His new mission is to be served by others and to exert his power to his own benefit. He's now building his own kingdom. He's seeking his own honor and his own name. He's living for his own glory. And this is how corruption clogs up our political system where people are not served. Now, do you think such corruption of, in the mission of leadership is unique to government? Power and prestige, they're inherent in most types of leadership. So you find the same corruption in police forces, in local businesses, in corporations, and, oh yeah, the church, the church as well. Even in the church, power and pride can get to someone's head, and soon their mission changes, where they're now out to serve self. Many examples of leaders in Scripture who had the wrong mission. You think of Balaam in the Old Testament, for example, who's pretty much a prophet for hire. And many of the Old Testament false prophets were essentially just prophets for hire. Matthew 23, you think of the Pharisees, where Christ exposes them. They were the equivalent of the lifetime politician. They were in it for themselves, their own power and prestige and honor and And they were all about keeping that position. So much so, they killed Christ because he threatened their power and their position. You also think of Philippians 1 where we learn that as Paul was imprisoned, others were emboldened to preach Christ, but not for Christ's sake, but for selfish ambition. They wanted to see Paul get knocked down a few pegs and they themselves elevated. They wanted some of the the prestige that came with being a, a minister. Also, they had the desire for monetary gain. There's many examples of people who entered leadership or evolved as leaders, and they just, their mission changed. They lost sight of the mission if they ever had it to begin with. And much corruption and personal sin has infiltrated the ranks of church leadership today. Many church leaders clearly have the mission of serving self. The news story recently of Jesse Duplantis. Louisiana televangelist who is soliciting his followers for you know, just $54 million so he can buy a top-of-the-line private jet for evangelism purposes, of course, right? You need that. Now, he already has three private jets, but now he wants the top-of-the-line Falcon 7X so he can go anywhere in the world just one stop. This is a true story, by the way. And he explained, you know, if Jesus were alive today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey, and he, he needs this for evangelism. This is for ministry. You need to give him money so he can get $54 million to get the, the latest and greatest jet. Now, that makes perfect sense, right? You know, countless stories of people in leadership like this in the church, they're motivated by money and power, honor, glory, all for themselves, not for the Lord. 
no matter what level of leadership you might have, you absolutely have to get the mission correct. Like, what's the point of this all? Why, why be a leader in the church? What's the mission? What's the purpose? It's going to be the same in the home, by the way. We'll see that maybe later. You just have to get the goal right and the mission right. And there's no shortage of examples of those with an unbiblical mission of leadership. We want to spend our time now and, and look at and, and seek the biblical mission of leadership. The true mission of biblical leadership. So let's, let's look after that now. Let's see if we can find it. The mission of biblical leadership. Well, to start, the mission of biblical leadership, it, it's going to be obviously related to the mission of the church. That should make sense to you. Last week, we surveyed the mission of the church. Who remembers what is, in short, the mission of the church? You can say it, Carol. You had it right. I saw you. To make disciples. That's right. Make disciples of all the nations. And what passage do we find that again? Matthew 28, 19 through 20. That's right. Where Christ called the disciples, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the Great Commission, commission passage. Last time we were reminded that the mission of the church is not just to make converts, but to make disciples. Discipleship is a lifelong process of helping others become more like Christ. Many church leaders don't recognize this, and they settle for even less. You know, they far short of making disciples, and they even fall short of making converts. They're just trying to make attendees. That's their mission, just make attendees. They've lost sight of the true mission of the church, if they ever had it. And they've confused ministry success with having the largest congregation. Almost all of that just traces back to their own personal pride. But this, this is what fuels the arms race between churches of who has the, the newest building, who has the latest program. But that's not the church's mission. The church's mission is to witness Christ and to make disciples. And that requires hard work, selfless work. And so I get a pair of verses that reinforce, reinforce what we learned with the Great Commission. You can turn to Luke 24. Get your Bibles out and, and turn over to Luke 24, 46 through 49. This is a similar passage in Luke. It's after the resurrection. Christ talking to the disciples. He has opened their minds to the scriptures now. So they are, are in a way, enlightened to finally put together everything the Old Testament said about Christ. He's also going to enlighten them about what they're going to do next because he's about to leave, but they're sticking around and he's going to entrust them with the mission. Luke 24, look at verse 46. And then he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, and you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And notice here, Christ reveals that it's always been God's plan that the Christ would come, suffer, die, rise, make atonement. And then what? What would happen after that? Verse 47. 
after he makes atonement, what comes next? Yeah, it's got to be proclaimed. People have to find out about it. Because salvation comes by faith. That's an essential element of salvation being applied to you in God's design. So people have to hear. They have to learn about this good news. That repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations. By whom? Who's going to do this proclaiming? Disciples. And Christ could. He could send some angels to proclaim from heaven if he wanted. Just fly through the sky. But he's chosen to use his living disciples, his followers. Originally, that consisted of the 11. But as you know, of course, it expanded over time. And it really includes all believers. All believers are living witnesses of the resurrection. Now, you and I haven't seen visibly the resurrected Christ, but we still witness of the resurrection power, new birth. We have experienced and tasted his resurrection power. And we can, through the testimony of Scripture, bear witness to Christ. And he mentions, of course, the power source that's going to enable us to witness and guarantee the outcome. In verse 49, it's really reference to the coming of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit gives us boldness to witness, and the Spirit is the one who moves that as we share the gospel, the Spirit is the one who actually brings the dead to life and applies the resurrection power to their lives. So Luke 24, you know Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Luke is just volume one. Acts is volume two. And he begins Acts almost where he left off. Christ, after the resurrection, he's about to ascend. And he repeats the mission right before he ascends in Acts 1.8. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And even to the remotest part of the earth. The same basic mission, you're now witnesses. At the ascension, Christ was going to go up, the Spirit would come down. The Spirit enabled them to effectively witness the gospel to all the nations. And understand though, we mentioned last week the chain of discipleship. We've been given the same Spirit. And as disciples, we have inherited the same mission. You're a witness. Maybe you're an active one or not so one or vocal or not so one, but you are to be a witness of these things as well. So look, if the clear mission of the church is to exalt God by witnessing Christ and making disciples, if if that stands, shouldn't that be the clear mission of leaders as well? That should be pretty obvious. If that's the mission of the church, it should be the mission of, of leaders who are really just the the higher up disciplers. Now, what exactly are we to witness about Christ though? What does our witness consist of? What are we witnessing? I hear mumbles. Someone, someone give me a little louder. What are we witnessing? What's the good news that you speak of? Okay. He died. He was buried. He raised. Okay. What's so special about his death? Yeah, for forgiveness. It was an atoning death. He paid for our sins. He rose from the dead. He conquered death that we might have forgiveness and new life. We are witnessing the gospel. The word for it is the gospel. It's the person and the work of Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, and all that goes with it. The word gospel means 
Good news. We are called to bear witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. It wasn't a trick question, by the way. This is really, we're talking about the whole message of the person and the work of Christ. How he came to pay for our sins, answer our problem of death, give us eternal life, all through his death and resurrection. And as this good news is preached, this is the the vehicle, the mechanism that God uses to make disciples, to call others to life, and to transform them into a disciple. This is how disciples are made. Romans 1.16 testifies where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. So now we can connect the dots a little bit and just describe succinctly the mission of biblical leadership. It is simply this, to minister the gospel. That's it. Write that down. It's not complicated. We're keeping it simple. We're talking big picture. The mission of biblical leadership at at all levels is to minister the gospel. Witness the gospel. Minister the gospel. Drill that in your mind. Be a minister of the gospel. It goes for all Christians. It certainly goes for leaders. If it's the mission of the church to make disciples, just minister the gospel. That's how you make disciples. That's how disciples grow. Same, same means minister the gospel. If you're a leader at any level, understand that your goal, your purpose is to minister the good news of Jesus Christ to people that you might make disciples and see the disciples grow. This is just a fundamental mission statement, you could say, for the church and certainly for the leaders of the church. Now, we're going to spend some time now further exploring this and establishing this to make it more clear to you that this is the mission of the church and its leaders. So let's reinforce this. This is our mission, both to believers and unbelievers. Same thing, same mission, minister the gospel. This is our mission for salvation and sanctification. As we remember that discipleship is not just making converts, but making a lifelong follower of Jesus. And we use the gospel for that too. We're gospel ministers. So let's study now ministering the gospel for salvation. Ministering the gospel for salvation, obviously to unbelievers. Ministering the gospel for salvation. Turn to 2 Corinthians 5. We'll be here for a while. 2 Corinthians 5. Many passages we could turn for this, but this is a, an important passage when it comes to the mission of biblical leaders. 2 Corinthians 5. You keep turning there. I'm going to read 17 through 19, so listen along. But make your way to 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. He says, verse 18, now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Okay, so verse 17, a short mention of the new birth, what God has done for us in Christ He says, verse 18, all these things are from God. He's he's talking about the new birth. 
But then notice after that, you know, verse 18, what did God do for us first in verse 18? What did he do for us? He reconciled us to himself through Christ. That's what he did. And then what did he do for us second after that? Yeah, very good. You can see you guys are studying the Bible. It's not, not so bad. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Just think about that. That's God's job. God is the one who reconciles people to himself. He does not need us. The new birth is a divine birth. In verse 17, this new creature, we, we can't do that at all. We can't make someone a new creature. This is a new birth. This is a divine birth. And it's God's doing. He does not need us to do that whatsoever. But God has chosen to use humans as the instruments of his reconciling work. He first reconciled us by the gospel. And then second, he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. He gave us a job to do. And this ministry of reconciliation, it's all about sharing the reconciling message of Christ's death and resurrection, how sinners are reconciled to God. We're, we're separate from God because of our sin. We will be eternally separated, but part of the glory of the gospel is reconciliation. You can be reconciled to your creator and dwell with him forever, again, as in the garden, once more. And so again, verse 19, you know, God, he says, God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That's our mission. He's committed to us the word of reconciliation. So what's our mission all about? Well, verse 20, he keeps going. He says, therefore, in light of this, therefore, who are we? We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, which he is. He says, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. From our human perspective, this is our mission. You just worry about that. We are ambassadors for Christ. Our mission to the lost, minister the gospel. And speaking of the gospel, verse 21 is a perfect one-verse summary of the gospel. He says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We were sinners. We, we did not deserve reconciliation. We deserve separation but the glory of the gospel is that God took Christ, who himself was sinless, and made him sin, made him the, the sin bearer in our place to take away our sins, also that we might become righteous in him. That's a verse to, to memorize. You, you want to know the gospel? There's one verse. You got it. So, our mission, to minister the gospel, to be an ambassador for Christ. We have a ministry of reconciliation. Makes sense. Why is it such a big deal, though? It's kind of an open-ended question, but why does it matter so much that we accept this mission of being ambassadors for Christ to the world? Why should we do this? Why should we care to do this? Okay, one, God commanded it. Simple obedience. That's a, a good answer. Okay, so we understand this is simply the means that God has ordained. And so we have a, a vital role to play to his glory, but he has ordained that we be the hands and the feet to go into the world. Good. One more. Want to take a stab? 
Okay, more so just being entrusted with being faithful to the gospel, to, to preserve it, to guard it. Yeah, that's good. Look back at verse 9. This is a verse I used to have my old you know, college students in my small group memorize. He says, there's, there's a larger context here, but he, he says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. It's not wrong to be ambitious. There is a, there is a type of godly ambition. When he says, whether at home or absent, in the context, he's talking about, you know, in this life or the next. Whether I'm still ticking here or I'm in the next life, we have this, a singular ambition or drive, purpose in life. What is it? Just trying to be pleasing to the Lord. That's it. That's a good verse to remember just in all things. This is our ambition in everything to be pleasing to him. This verse is about our goal in life, in this life and the next. But in this life in particular, we want to be pleasing to the Lord. It's our desire. We also know that we're going to give an account for how we use this life and spend this life. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which speaks of a judgment not where eternity is in the balance, but simply our faithfulness is in the balance for the sake of rewards. We seek to please and honor him who reconciled us. And so we should be faithful. We're given a ministry of reconciliation by our master who reconciled us. We just want to please our master. He saved us. So we're going to be faithful to the ministry of reconciliation he's, he's given to us in different measures, right? Different callings. But in some measure, we've all, if you're, if you're a disciple, in some measure, we've all been entrusted the ministry of reconciliation. Just be faithful because you want to please the Lord and stand before him unashamed and approved. So first, we are compelled to be ambassadors for Christ because we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him in all respects. Second, we're compelled to, to do this because of the love of Christ. Like at verse 14, you jump down a little bit. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Verse 14, love of Christ. Is that speaking of our love for Christ or his love for us? You got 50-50 here. It's his love for us. In the context, it's clear. It's Christ's love for us. What he did for us is what controls us. Not to say that we don't love him, but the point Paul is making is this supreme show of selfless, sacrificial love that, that Christ made on our behalf controls us. That, that he went to the, the lengths of dying in our place, bearing God's wrath in our place. Think of this love that we've received that controls us, that compels us, for those who are alive in Christ, to, to follow him, to honor him, to obey him with joy, not with burden. And he says, for the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all. Why? Well, what's the consequence of receiving this love of Christ? Verse 15, he died for all, so that what? The outcome. Live for him. That's it. He, he, he gave himself for you, for many reasons, of course. 
But here he's pointing out that you're his now. He bought you with the price. He's redeemed you with the price. You're his. And it's like a life debt situation. He saved your life eternally. and You live for him now. Your, your very life from then on. You know, like cultures that have a life debt, like if, if you save someone's life, where they would have died, they just spend the rest of their life serving you because you, you've basically, you know, they, they owe the rest of their life to you because you saved them. Well, Christ, we owe eternity to him. He saved us eternally. We, we live for him now. Just consider the alternative. would have been perishing in hell. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to live for him now, considering the love of Christ we've received. And so we live for him. He bought us. We live to serve him. Our very lives are indebted to Christ. We're controlled by his love. All this goes to say, this is why we are happy to be ambassadors for Christ. We're happy to take up this ministry that he's given to us. We live for him. He said, okay, now just be my witnesses, be my ambassadors. Okay, that's what we're going to do. And that's why we're going to do it. Desire to please him and because the love of Christ controls us. You know, knowing our prior condemnation and having received the love of Christ, at the same time, it should also give us a real compassion for the lost. You should have a, a real compassion for the lost. That, that once was you. They're perishing. They need Christ. And accordingly, it's, it's not enough for the lost to just attend our church and pad our attendance numbers. If they're still going to hell, that would be mission failed. You could have a church of 10,000 people, and if they're all perishing, it's still mission failed. If you really believe the lost are perishing, and that apart from Christ, they'll be eternally separated from the love of God, and if you know that only the gospel can save them, well then in love and in mercy and compassion, you're at least just going to be faithful to witness the gospel to them. You can't make them a new creature, That's God's job, but you just be faithful to your job, which is to witness the gospel. Be a minister of the gospel. That's your mission, minister of the gospel. And this is all ultimately to the glory of God as well. We desire to see God glorified, God honored, God's name magnified. And and God's name is magnified as, as rebels and sinners are changed and made worshipers. That, that accentuates the glory of God. God himself, according to John 4, 23, is seeking true worshipers. And so it should be our passion to see others become worshipers. All the people out there in the world, they're, they're not worshiping God. They're, they've exchanged the glory of God and the gospel for a lie. And we should have a, a passion to see God worshiped and exalted. But they can't worship. They can come to church all they want, but they can't worship. If they're dead, they are physically and spiritually unable to worship. If they're going to worship him, they need to be made a new creature. Therefore, they need the gospel. So again, we we want to see God exalted, minister the gospel. And everyone who comes by his will will be a a new trophy in the trophy case of God's glory, and he will be exalted. So this this is why we do it. This is why we take up the mission of being ministers of the gospel. Now, I spent a little bit of time here in the middle of understanding the gospel for a second, just understanding the gospel. What's the mission of biblical leadership? It is to minister the gospel. And so far, we've talked about ministering the gospel to unbelievers for salvation. 
And in a second here, we're going to talk about ministering the gospel to believers for salvation. It's the same mission. Believers, unbelievers, salvation, sanctification. It's the same thing, actually. We're, we're still ministers of the gospel. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second. But first, I just want to pause and make sure that we understand what we mean by gospel. I've thrown the term around. Make sure you, you have it in your mind a little bit. The gospel is an important term. It becomes like a technical term. And it does get thrown around, oftentimes without explanation. I remember myself as a brand new believer. I heard the term in sermons. Just It gets tossed around. And I didn't really know what, what it was meant by it. They kept saying it like I knew it was important. I just didn't really know. Like, can someone just define that for me? I had a basic understanding of the saving message of Jesus. But I had to be spoon-fed the answers as a, a brand new believer. Like, if someone was preaching it, it would all make sense. And I, I'd believe it all. Like, oh, yeah, it all makes sense. But if I were challenged to say it myself, I'd be kind of at a loss for words. And I know many share that experience, even over time. Many Christians today, they have, you might say, a, a first-grade understanding of the gospel. And look, in a sense, that's okay. We all start off with a childlike understanding of the gospel. And you know what? That's okay because it only takes the faith of a child to save. You can be saved with a childlike understanding of the gospel. But especially if you want to grow as a leader, focus here. Make this your focus. Just get to know the gospel really well, inside and out. And don't worry about obscure theological debates. You just spend your time getting to know the truths of Christ, his person, his work, That'll serve you way more than some of these little nitpicky debates we might have in Christian circles. Just get to know the gospel. Become an expert in the gospel. That's our mission after all, right? Get to know the gospel. You know, in real brief, the gospel, it's the saving, life-transforming message of Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's done to answer our sin problem. As we said before, it means good news, the gospel. But the message of good news always starts with bad news. That we're lost, we're dead, we're condemned before a perfectly holy and righteous God because of our sins before him. We're headed for a just and eternal punishment. We deserve and, and we can do nothing to escape. That's how lost we are. We can't do a single thing to save ourselves. But the glory is that God can and he has in sending his son Christ fully God, fully man, to die for us in our place on the cross, to bear the, the full weight of our sin in our place, to pay for it all, that we might be forgiven. And though he died, he rose from the dead, conquering death itself, that he might stand as the victor and offer us new life, eternal life, to answer the problem of death. That's our problem, physically, spiritually, eternally, the gospel is the good news because there's such big bad news, eternal death. But the good news is that the Savior has come and he solves the problem of death. He answers that problem. And if you go to him, if you confess him as Lord and, and Savior and submit to him in your heart, and give him your life by faith, God will make you alive and make you a disciple and save you. And this is you know, the basic message of good news that we minister and sadly, though, it seems like many church leaders and, and sometimes even pastors don't seem to, to know it or have a real good handle on it. I, I see many, they just, they become moralists. 
their teaching consists of clever speech plus moral lessons. Now, I remember when I, again, when I was a brand new believer, I was in college, someone gave a sermon to me to listen to, and so I listened to it, and I thought it was great. The preacher was clever and intelligent and engaging. These great illustrations, great stories. I thought, yeah, this is really engaging sermons. I was so excited about it. I gave it to another friend of mine to listen to, and he did so, and asked him what he thought. And he very graciously rebuked me. Why? Well, you know, the sermon was clever, but my friend then said to me, you know, did you notice that the guy didn't open the Bible once in the whole sermon? Never even referenced the scriptures. There's, there's nothing distinctively Christian about the sermon. There's no gospel power. It's just clever speech and a moral lesson. And uh, I didn't see that. I was just like, oh, it just seems engaging. I learned a lesson on that day of the, the centrality of the word and preaching and so forth. But sadly, this is like a lot of preaching today. This is, I would say, you know, maybe most preaching today is just clever speech and a moral lesson attached to it. But it's lacking that, that distinctive Christian flavor, the power of the gospel being ministered. And so you could get that in the world. It's not the power of God if it's lacking the gospel. And when you say that would disqualify a church leader, if he doesn't know the gospel, I mean, if the mission of biblical leadership is to minister the gospel and a supposed leader, especially like a, an elder or pastor, if they don't really know and have a handle on the gospel, how can they really fulfill that mission? And you just, how about you just start off and get to know the gospel and then you just minister that gospel? I pray that's true of us, that, that we know it, we minister it well. In fact, this is so important. We're going to come back next week. We're not quite done, but we're going to come back next week and spend a whole lesson on the power of biblical leadership, which is the gospel message. It's so important. We're just going to spend a next Sunday evening just hanging out and studying more the gospel message, that you get you know, a little one-hour dose of the gospel next Sunday. We'll come back to that. For now, though, I want to finish up, though, and, and consider the second aspect of our mission, you know, ministering the gospel is our mission. We considered ministering the gospel for salvation you know, to unbelievers. Now, ministering the gospel for sanctification to believers. You know, our, our mission with respect to the world, minister the gospel unto salvation. Our mission with respect to the church, it's the same thing, minister the gospel unto sanctification. I want to establish this. It's the same mission, minister the gospel. And the gospel is not just for evangelism. You know, some might think like, hey, great, I'm saved. Hey, I believe in Jesus. He died. He rose. That's all nice. But I, I believe, all, I know all that. Now I want to move on to the good stuff. And I move on to, you know, the meaty theology. Give me, give me the good stuff now. I don't just need the basics. But no, there's no deeper well than the truth of the gospel. You can't go any deeper than the truths of the gospel. When Paul said that the gospel is the power of God for salvation, you really can't take that to mean, like we said this morning, a holistic salvation. That means past salvation, present salvation, future salvation, i.e. justification, sanctification, and glorification. 
The gospel is central to, to all of that. The whole Christian life is centered on Christ and, and the good news. And the word of Christ is still the means by which we grow and become more like him. So it only fits that the mission of biblical leaders with respect to the church doesn't change. Minister the gospel. You minister the gospel to make a disciple. Then you keep ministering the gospel and the word of Christ to grow that disciple. It's the same mission. Discipleship is our goal. And the gospel is essential for lifelong discipleship. Let's see this in Colossians 1. Turn to Colossians 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, look at verse 21. He starts off 21 through 23 to begin. He says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So to start verses 21 through 23, he gives a short little recap of the gospel and what Christ did for them in the gospel in reconciling them to himself, even though they were lost and evil and so forth. And he includes a call for them to continue in the gospel that they have heard. It's not just something you believe once and then you become a Christian and forget about. You've got to continue in the gospel and its power. This is Paul's mission to minister the gospel. So much so he was even willing to suffer for it. He says in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I do, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. He's just referring to the fact that, you know, all those who follow Christ and share in his ministry of the gospel, in whatever level, it comes with risk that if you minister the gospel of Christ, that they might treat you like they treated him and afflict you like they afflicted him. That comes with the territory for all who minister the gospel because as we bring the message of the gospel, some people don't like it, especially that the bad news part that has to come first. They don't like that, and they just might reject it and afflict you like they did to Paul. But so be it. It wasn't going to stop him. He was going to carry on because this was just his ministry, his, the mission entrusted to him which he preached, verse 23, under all heaven. He was made a minister of the gospel. And so it goes for for all believers, in a sense. Now look at verse 25. We're getting closer to where I want you to see. Verse 25, he says, Of this church I was made a minister, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now stop there. And what does it mean that Paul was made a minister as a stewardship 
from God. What, what's it mean by it to say this, this ministry was a stewardship? What's in that word? Responsible for what you're saying. Good. Watching over, entrusted with something by whom? Yeah, a master would entrust a servant with some duties. And you got to be faithful. You're, you're, you're a steward. It's not your house. You're, you're being put over something in charge of something. You're given a, a measure of authority over something. And you need to be faithful to, to steward, to oversee, to, to deal with your master's household. And you'll be held accountable for it. And so it goes for church leadership. Church leadership for Paul, the ministry of the gospel, was not a position of power. It was a position of service. He was merely a servant, a slave of Christ. This is his stewardship. It's not his church. He planted all these churches, but it's not his church. He's merely a steward being temporarily placed over the household of God at a various level of leadership. It's God's church, though, and God will take Paul out whenever he wants, and eventually he did. And he'll put someone else in charge to be a steward for a season in various levels. And Paul was merely a servant made responsible by God for leading and feeding and protecting others in the church. And for this, he would give an account. This is all ministry. It's merely stewardship of God's people. It's not your church. It's not to your glory. It has nothing to do with your power. Just a stewardship. Now, who is to benefit from Paul's ministry and his stewardship, though? The church. He says the church. Very clear. Verse 25. To your benefit. His position of leadership was not to his own benefit. It was to the church's benefit. He's not just there getting fat off the people, fleecing the flock. He was there to serve them. And end of verse 25. What was the primary expression of Paul's ministry? What's that, Karen? Did you say it? Preaching the word. That's right. To, to carry out, to fulfill the mission of preaching the word of God. And the power of the ministry, for all ministry, is in God's word. More specifically, the gospel. So he's, gonna, he's gotta preach it. Like Christ said way back in Luke, you know, you've gotta proclaim this message to all the nations. The power is in the word proclaimed, delivered to someone's heart. And he's going to go on and explain that. Verse 26, he says that I might carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, he references mystery, Anytime you see the word mystery in the New Testament, or rather most times, it means just this. In verse 26, it's referring to some truth that was previously hidden and unrevealed in the Old Testament, but now is being made known. That's a mystery. And so in verse 27, what is the content of the mystery he's talking about here? What's the mystery that's being revealed? That's right. Christ. Yeah, very good. Christ in you. The hope of glory. In the Old Testament, we made reference to Gentile salvation. That's not the mystery. But never to this reality of Christ indwelling us, this union with Christ. We knew of the indwelling spirit, but not 
not the Messiah, the Christ indwelling us. But now it's been revealed that the full presence and power of the Messiah would be present in believers, even the Gentiles. And that still was hard for the Jews to accept. But even in the Gentiles, Christ in you. And think of Galatians 2.20, where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do you see how you know, the, the gospel message, Christ's love for us, giving himself up for us, it's just essential to Paul's life, his Christian life, his identity. And think about that verse. We won't pick it apart too much, but do you see how Christ-centered the Christian life is supposed to be? He's not an afterthought. He's the thought. And to give Christ first place in all things. And that, that's really no different from saying how gospel-centered the Christian life is supposed to be. Christ is everything to us. The Christian life is not simply about you know, reforming your character, trying to be a better person, a nicer person. It's not even about keeping a, a set of laws or rules. It's all about coming to Christ, abiding with Christ, being united to Christ, having Christ formed in you. Christ himself gives us life and becomes our life. This is where Paul can say to live is Christ. You you fully understand that? And that's the well. You go deeper there. You just just figure all that out. Now, that'll take your lifetime. Just figure out that the glory of Christ in you. All these truths surrounding the gospel, all of which are about Christ. Just spend your time there. You know, the word Christian really just means, you know, little Christ or followers of Christ. And the Christian life is about following Christ in every sense of the term. It is to be radically Christ-centered, radically gospel-centered, same thing. And this, that should affect our mission as leaders, right? You get the main point. It's not about the stuff. It's about Christ, knowing Christ, following Christ, abiding in Christ, dwelling with Christ, submitting to Christ, letting Christ's word fill you, being united to Christ, if I didn't say that already, and then Christ in you, the hope of glory. And all that, all that, all those things mean, you just minister that. That's the mission. It's Christ. It's the gospel. Biblical leadership must be radically Christ-centered, which again is akin to being radically gospel-centered. Hence, verse 28, and this is a verse I was wanting to get to. Verse 28 of Colossians 1. He says, after all this, we proclaim him. That's what we do. We proclaim him. Isn't that what it comes down to? We just proclaim him. It's a person. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works mightily within me. Now, look at verse 28. Can you tell, and you haven't had a lot of time to study this, but can you tell maybe real quick offhand, what is unique about verse 28 that's different from the verses which came before and the verse that follows? A quick guess, perhaps? What's different? What, what, what just changed in verse 28? 
Want to take a guess, Grace? No, not, not wisdom, although that he does throw in wisdom. That's not what I'm getting at. Nope, not, that's also good, but not what I'm getting at. There it is. Marlene got it. goes from I to we. Where'd that come from? He's been saying, I rejoice in my sufferings. I was made a minister of the church that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word. It's very personal, autobiographical, as Paul often is. And then in verse 29, he says, for this purpose, I labor. But why does he say in verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Why do you think he switches from the, the first person to the third person and throws us all in there? Should be a little obvious. It's a collective mission. This is a collective mission. We proclaim Christ. It's true of all leaders. And shouldn't it be true of all Christians? It's just just being a disciple, being a disciple maker, making disciples. We proclaim him. We're all made witnesses and ministers in this regard. We have a shared mission of proclaiming Christ. It's not just for the super spiritual, not just for the clergy, it's for every believer. What does proclaiming Christ involve? He says, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. The word admonish is nuthetail. It's where, where the word nuthetic counseling comes from. It just means to challenge, to exhort, to counsel. We, we teach people and we admonish people. And we bring the gospel and all of God's word to bear in their lives. That, that's what it means. And we do this with all wisdom, which is to say we know what to say and when to say it. That's part of wisdom. It's just it's, we proclaim Christ. We're bringing the word, the full counsel of the mind of Christ, which is the scriptures, to bear on a person's life. That's, that's how we uh, build them up. And you, you can see the purpose, pretty obvious. Why do we do this? Why proclaim Christ, teaching and admonishing with wisdom? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. First, notice how universal this is. Three times he says, every man, every man, every man. Of course, woman as well. It just means person. Everyone, every disciple is to receive, to be on the receiving end of this, that they would be discipled, that they would be presented. And as we learned last week about the chain of discipleship, we we should aspire to get to the point where we are the ones doing this to others, that we are joining in the mission of seeking others to be complete in Christ. It's for every person, and it's to seek them to be complete in Christ. Talios, the word just means mature, perfect, complete. It just speaks of God's purpose for us in general. Like Romans eight twenty nine, he says that the purpose for which we were predestined, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, that we would be built up into him who is the head, that we would be made like Christ. This is our mission. It's the same as God's mission. Or really, rather, it it was God's mission. He's just given it to us. He has entrusted his mission to us, that we would partake in his mission for his elect, that they would be made like his son, conformed to his image. In sanctification, that's a process. And we're going to engage by ministering the gospel. We proclaim him, teaching, admonishing the the gospel, the mind of Christ. That's how we partake in the work God has given us to do and minister the gospel. 
And verse 29, Paul makes clear, at least for him, that this was a, a purpose statement, a mission statement. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. I wish this was all of our purpose. Wouldn't that be great? Like we mentioned again last week, what a great local church you would have if, if everyone thought like a shepherd, if everyone made this their purpose. Whether or not you're perhaps called to be a pastor, elder at that high level, just at any level to make this your purpose, even just encouraging the person in the pew next to you. Like Oliver has taught us in the previous Sunday night series, aren't you all biblical counselors? You're called to be. You can admonish one another. Who is sufficient for these things? No one. But we're enabled, like Paul, by God's power. So we labor and we strive. Because he empowers us, we labor and we strive to be faithful to this mission, to minister the gospel. Work is required. To lead, to lead others, to do this, you've got to labor with people, strive with people. Uh, but do so. I, I hope you embrace the mission. Get straight the mission, our purpose. It is to minister the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. To unbelievers for salvation, to believers for sanctification, same thing. Just be a minister of the gospel and all it means. And then get busy. Enter this labor. Join in this striving. Do so according to God's power and then just be faithful. Because you want to please him. Because you'll stand before him and give an account. Because his love controls you. And as you do so though, God will give you the joy. There's a special joy that comes with biblical leadership. It's a joy of, of, of the privilege of being able to participate in God's work of presenting others complete in Christ. The joy of seeing someone grow in Christ. We said earlier, biblical leadership, it's for the benefit of the church. And that doesn't mean the leader doesn't benefit as well. You know, those who enter into this mission of ministering the gospel, they gain the unique joy in the Lord of just seeing others grow and participating, being the instrument in the Redeemer's hands. We can see someone built up, and although God gets the glory, God gives you joy in saying, well, he chose to use you and you were faithful to, to help that person grow. He gets the glory, but you get the joy. You get joy in that, and that's a special thing. So I pray you gain this joy by accepting the mission of biblical leadership which is to minister the gospel. All right, with that, we'll, we'll finish a little over time. So if you have questions, I'll let you come and see me after. At this point, I'll pray and we'll finish our time. And then next week, we'll come back for really almost a compendium lesson as we think about the, the mission. Again, we're starting with these bigger picture topics. Think about the mission of leadership. We want to get into the power, which is the gospel. And to just take that, let's, let's, let's dive into that well a little bit deeper see where it goes, understand it better. And uh, maybe make a mention too next week of, of how this all applies to other forms of leadership, like parenting, minister the gospel. You'll see fruit there as well. We'll get to that next week. Let me pray for us. Great God, we, we praise you for your word, the word of truth by which we are saved and we are called. And now we are called to minister. We have not seen the risen Christ, but we don't need to. We, we have 
the more sure word given to us. We have the whole counsel of God. We have the mind of Christ given to us that we might know you and the power of his death and resurrection, the identity of the Son and his mission for us. We have the gospel laid, laid out clear in the word, Lord, and that's all we need. I pray we don't take that for granted. Convict us to be men and women who, who know the gospel, who just sit here and, and don't worry about going any further, just to, to know Christ and him crucified, him dwelling in us, and that we would abide in him and his words. I pray you deepen all of us in our knowledge of the Son of God, that we might grow. And at the same time, that we would also then pass that, that knowledge on to others, because it's by the word of truth that the lost are saved and the saved are sanctified. They just equip us to be ministers of your word. Teach us the word that we might pass it on to others and grow us, Lord. I pray you convict us to accept this mission. Although some are specially called, we all are called to admonish, to teach, to make disciples. And so may we all rise up to, to minister the gospel. And may our church and our community benefit as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.